We're going to take a look back to how language teaching was done a couple of decades back, where it went from there, and how we ended up where we are right now with how we are teaching language in the classroom in a way that we know is effective. Sometimes we got to go in the past to see how we got where we are now. Let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Welcome to the World Language Classroom podcast today. So we are going to jump right in to looking at the history of what has been going on with language teaching. Now, I know you might be thinking, uh, let's just talk about what we do now and how to do it well. Wouldn't that be a good use of our time? Yeah, I do think that would be an awesome use of our time. And it's definitely what we're going to be doing moving forward. But I do think it's important to sort of look at where we were, how it all started, what we've learned from that, and how we ended up where we are right now. Uh, So maybe we can learn from the way things were done in the past. Maybe we want to keep doing some of it. Or maybe it's best left in the past. So we're going to dive through three major areas of language teaching and learning that have happened throughout sort of the last century, you can go way back because language learning obviously has been happening for a very long time. But we're going to sort of look at the 50s, 1950s through present day, and it falls into three kind of schools of thought when it comes to language learning. It was behaviorism, and then innateism, and then social interactionism, which is kind of where we are right now. So We're going to go through kind of looking at who was involved, what they were doing, a little bit about what language teaching looked like or why it was being done the way it was being done. But then in the next episode, in episode three, I'm actually going to take each one of these schools of thought and look at the specific methods that were being used in the classroom and some of them that are kind of still there and maybe shouldn't be and some that have progressed. So just so you know, for this episode, we're going to kind of get the understanding of these schools of these approaches, these schools of thought. And then in the next episode, we'll look specifically at some methods. And then going on through the future of this entire podcast, we're going to look very much at procedure and technique and what to do in the classroom with other teachers as well. So the first thing we're going to be considering here is this idea of nature versus nurture. Now, we've heard that in many different realms, nature versus nurture. Like, are you born with it or is it something that you learn? So the first place to start, and this is kind of bringing us really early in the uh, 20th century. So we're going to look at Pavlov, um, who is of the behaviorist school, and he was born in 1849 and he died in 1936. So The actual language teaching that came out of his work was happening in the 50s, but his research was from much earlier on. 
Now, he was a Russian physiologist, as they call it, or a doctor. And he had this whole idea of operant conditioning. Now, when you hear the word or the name Pavlov, you probably think of his dogs, his salivating dogs. So he came up with this whole theory of operant conditioning where you have a sort of reward and punishment for behavior. Uh, So through operant conditioning, an association is made between a behavior and a consequence, whether negative or a positive consequence. And the idea is that you try stuff, and when it's met with a positive consequence or positive feedback, you continue to do it because you've learned to do it correctly. And if it's a negative consequence, you just don't do it anymore. So if you know about his salivating dogs, he had the food for his dogs, and as they ate, he would ring this bell. And the idea was that they would salivate as they were eating, and they would hear this bell. And as time moved on, he would ring the bell without the food there. And so just upon hearing the bell, they would salivate. So that was his whole theory of operant conditioning. So you were kind of making this association, and it was all about what was observable. And the other name that comes up within the behaviorist tradition, sort of, again, early in the uh, 20th century, uh, is Skinner. And he was a psychologist or a behaviorist, author, inventor, social philosopher. They always had all these different terms because you couldn't really put these researchers, these these people in a box sometimes. Uh, But he was born in 1904 and actually died in 1990. So, He was actually able to see some of his work in use in terms of language learning. And he had also this stimulus response, just like Pavlov's operant conditioning. Skinner also had this stimulus response. When a particular stimulus happened, there was a response to it, and then it was reinforced. And you continue to do the positive, the, the behavior that gave you positive reinforcement. This was used as a general theory of education, so it also happened when it came to language learning. So all of it was about what was completely observable. So you could see, you could watch a learner do something, realize it was wrong through some sort of feedback and not do it anymore, or they would do something, they would get praise or some sort of reward or reinforcement, and so they would continue to do it. Completely observable. So it was basically they were imitating what they were seeing around them. And this was one of the initial theories of language learning. And it was all about this imitation and practice, and you got some sort of consequence for it. So with first language acquisition, with babies, they would imitate sounds around them, and adults would praise them and sort of propel the child to try harder to achieve more. So this whole idea is once you get all this positive reinforcement that you're saying something correctly, that you're forming all of these habits. And that's what language is. It's just this huge supply of habits that you have formed. All these things that you've memorized and you are able to just pull on all of these habits whenever you need to say something. So essentially you have to say every word, phrase, or sentence possible in your language and realize if it's right or wrong. So you're a complete blank slate going into it. So that was what was happening with initial research on sort of language in general, but education in general. And so it was just applied to language learning. 
And in the next episode, when we look specifically at some of the classroom practice, you'll see that some of that has stayed around a little bit. But as we moved through the 50s, we came into what was called the Cognitive Revolution. Now, the Cognitive Revolution start was it was started by a, a whole host of people that were involved in this. But the whole idea was it was really looking at brain processing and activity rather than just sort of this formation of habits when it came to learning and really looking at cognition in the brain. And when it comes to language learning and language teaching, the name that is associated with this innatist cognitive way of looking at language learning is Chomsky. Now, Chomsky was born in 1928, and he's still alive. So he's been able to see the fruits of his labor in the language learning and teaching realm. He's not just a linguist. I shouldn't say just a linguist, because if you're a linguist, that's a pretty amazing thing. But Chomsky is a philosopher, he's a cognitive scientist, historian, social critic, political activist. I mean, he's, he continues to do a number of things. He was a professor at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts for many years, went on to Arizona. So he's, he's still very vocal in a lot of these areas. But one of the areas that we as language teachers associate him with is this idea of moving beyond behaviorism and looking at the mind and how it actually processes language. And what he posited out there was that you are not a blank slate, as Skinner or Pavlov or anyone else in the behaviorism world would have thought. You are not a blank slate, but rather you are born with this innate capacity to learn language. So basically, in your brain when you're born, a quote-unquote normally functioning individual, you have in your brain these, pri these principles that are underpinning the structure of language that are biologically preset in the human mind and so basically genetically inherited as part of your DNA. So you have this place in your mind that specifically works towards learning language. So he also says that this is a unique evolutionary development of the human species, which distinguishes uh, other modes of communication used by other animals and species. Now, granted, animals have a way of communicating. It's just not through verbal language that we associate with communication. So now language acquisition in the innatist tradition it all depends on unobservable mechanisms, and it's all happening in this place called the language acquisition device, the LAD, and it's supplied to humans at birth. So whereas the behaviorists did not see this in there, you know, it was just you with this blank slate and you just had to form these habits of language and have enough habits to be able to communicate with them. But now Chomsky put out there that, no, you have this innate ability in your mind called the language acquisition device. And it's filled with all of these language universals that have basically syntax. It's mostly focused on syntax, the word order or grammar structures within a sentence. And it has the possibility for every language in the world is in there. And 
through your exposure to language and interacting with language that you pull from those universals that are in the language acquisition device. And he calls that system of language universals universal grammar. Got very theoretical there. Hope you stayed with me. But basically, the idea is that you have this language acquisition device in your mind, in your brain, on a cognitive level that is predisposed to learning any language. And it's genetically inherited. And so he came up with this idea because of the idea of poverty of stimulus. So when we say poverty of stimulus, it just means there is a, a, a lack of input. So there is an enormous gap between the linguistic input to which a child is exposed and the rich linguistic competence that they attain. So a behaviorist would say everything you're able to say, it's because you've heard, you've practiced and been told that it was right or wrong, and then you moved on from there. But what Chomsky was seeing um, in his theory is that despite not having the vast majority of that input, that your brain is still, based on a small amount of input, able to create this language system within your brain. So Chomsky theorized that the child from birth is exposed to language that functions as a trigger for that LAD, for that language acquisition device. So it just kind of triggers the understanding, the acquiring of that structure. So now the child, first language we're talking about here, the child is completely unconscious of this process. So it's also applicable somewhat to second language acquisition. Um, there are some things that transfer really easily, uh, but there are some things that don't. So for example, with second language acquisition, you have to assume some interaction with the first language, which may inhibit the process a little bit. But with first language acquisition, you don't have that. So that's the big difference between behaviorism and innateism. Behaviorism, blank slate, form all your habits, and you do that by saying something and you're told if it's right or wrong in some way. Then Chomsky said, no, you're not that. You, you're not a blank slate. You're actually born genetically with this place in your brain, the language acquisition device filled with universal grammar. And even with very, very little input, you're able to, on a subconscious level, uh, create this language in your brain. So that's kind of the big difference. And that came about because of the cognitive revolution. Now with behaviorists, you could see that they, everything was observable. But with innatists, it's unconscious. So it's not so observable, which is what keeps it in that theoretical realm. And sometimes it's going to be difficult to grapple with. Now, everyone is everyone who publishes puts, puts themselves out there to have someone disagree with them. And so Chomsky and other others in the innatist tradition were very um, critical of the behaviorist. And so innatists and Chomsky are not without their critics as well. So a lot of linguists refute the findings and the theory of universal grammar and Chomsky. One of them in particular is Tomasello. And his basic critique is that it's so theoretical and not observable. You can't actually put it to a sort of laboratory test. So anytime you are researching 
anything in linguistics, unless you're doing very specific MRI imaging of the brain and seeing where the synapses are firing off and all of that. But for the most part, you just get a lot of data and then you see sort of what the culmination of that data shows to us. But it's not exactly a science like chemistry where it's a mathematical equation to get where you want to get. So you'll see a lot of times that you will have critiques of theories because that's what a theory is. It opens itself up to a critique. So we had the behaviorists, we had the innatists, and then we have our third school which we are mostly in right now, and it's a really great place to be. And this is what we refer to as social interactionism. Now, it's the explanation of language development that emphasizes the role of social interaction between the developing child and linguistically knowledgeable adults. So again, this is first language acquisition. We can pull a lot of that for second language acquisition. So a lot of this is based very largely on the sociocultural theories of the Soviet psychologist Lev Vygotsky. And he, again, was turn of the, turn of the uh, 20th century. So he was born in 1896, died in 1934. And he had done a lot of work as a psychologist in, with social interaction. And Del Himes, um, who was definitely on the scene well after him, he was born in 1927, he just died in 2009, um, but he pulled from that idea of social interactionism and as a linguist, sociologist, and a, a linguistic anthropologist, he called himself, he coined this term of communicative competence in 1972. And this was really pulling on the work of Lev Vygotsky. He termed communicative competence as a knowledge of the rules for understanding and producing both the referential and social meaning of language. So basically, since humans are social beings, the child must learn to be socially productive and appropriate within these groups. So in essence, how to be linguistically, socially, and communicatively competent within these social spaces. And as we talk about communicative language teaching, you can see how we are in this realm of social interactionism. Now, I would say that social interactionists do lean on innatist theories, that it's more of a subconscious process uh, where cognition is very much involved in the language acquisition process. Uh, you could definitely look into Bill Van Patten's work where he's spoken about and published widely on this idea of acquired language is on that subconscious level and it's through rich input and comprehensible input that you're able to form language in your mind brain, as he calls it. Um, so you could see that that definitely pulls on that innatist tradition, that it's happening on a subconscious level and there's an innate ability for language. But beyond the innatist, it also says that you have to be socially, in, you have to be acting socially with the language. You have to be using it in social situations because it's not just at the linguistic level that language exists to communicate with social beings. 
and there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to use language. And that you're not going to, even if you know the entire language, if you don't know how to use it in a social situation, then why bother in the first place? So that's really what this idea of communicative competence is. So though we do lean on innatist theories of cognition and this language acquisition device, we've moved on to looking at how to use it in a social situation because that's how language is used. And uh, this is not new. Um, this is, again, I said Del Himes, who in the early 70s put out the idea of communicative competence and using the initial research of Lev Vygotsky, who was you know, publishing in 1920, 1930. So again, it's not new, but we're, we're pulling it in and saying that we have to put this social realm on top of the innatist work. So what does this mean for us in the classroom as teachers? Do we want to approach things as a behaviorist? Do we want to approach it just as an innatist? Or do we want to approach it with a social interactionist realm, which is innatist but put in a social construct? So you could probably guess um, where I want to go with this, um, that the communicative language classroom is definitely a social interactionist approach to language. And in our next podcast, I'm going to take behaviorism, innatism, and social interactionism and look at some of the methods that were developed, created, and used specifically within those three schools of language teaching methodology and look at what was effective, what was not. And if we look at, say, something that was happening in the behaviorist realm at that time, and we look at that still happening in our classroom right now, if, if we refute behaviorism, yet we're still doing things that were developed within the behaviorist approach, then we need to take a good look at why we're doing that in our classroom. Sometimes things just stick around. And it's time for them to go. So we're going to look very specifically at those things in the uh, the next episode. So thank you so much for hanging around here. If you want to dive in a little deeper, look into Pavlov and his salivating dogs and Skinner. Um, Chomsky, you can always dive really deeply into his theories of universal grammar and the language acquisition device. And even though Lev Vygotsky was a long time ago... Uh, there is some great stuff in his publishing and research uh, that can help you in the classroom as well. And always remember, Del Himes was the one who gave us the idea of communicative competence to start with. So thank you so much for joining me today. Look forward to hanging out again real soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.